Welcome to the Bitcoin Boomer Show. Here's your host, the Bitcoin Boomer himself, Gary Leland. Hello, and welcome to the Bitcoin Boomer Show. I'm your host, Gary Leland, also known as the Bitcoin Boomer. And thank you for joining us on our show, brought to you from Biz TV Studios and Biz Talk Radio Studios here in lovely Texas. Now, on this show, we try to tell you about Bitcoin. That's what we do. We talk about Bitcoin. I'm not selling you Bitcoin. I don't have any Bitcoin I want to give you either. But we bring on great guests to talk about Bitcoin and try to educate you on what Bitcoin is, where it came from, where it's going to go. You know, boomers are traditionally known in this space, in this Bitcoin space, as not knowing much about Bitcoin. And that's something I'm trying to change. But I don't want to say this show is just for boomers. Anyone who is not familiar with Bitcoin and wants to learn more about Bitcoin will enjoy this show as we go through different parts or different steps or different areas of Bitcoin on every episode. Now, today we have a great guest, a friend of mine and a fellow co-author, Pete Rizzo. Uh, Pete is a Bitcoin historian, I would say. He loves talking about Bitcoin. He knows Bitcoin history more than anyone I know. On previous shows, we've gone over Bitcoin, how it works, how to mine Bitcoin, the technology behind Bitcoin, many things, but we've never actually covered the history of Bitcoin, who made it, where it came from, the different events that have happened in the last 12 years of Bitcoin's history. Now, Pete is also editor-at-large at Kraken and the head editor at Bitcoin Magazine. So he writes and reads a lot about Bitcoin. I guess that's why he became a historian. So I do appreciate you joining us for this show on our second season. And before we get started, I do want to remind you to share this show with your friends. If you know someone who is interested in Bitcoin or you think might get something out of this show, let them know about this show. But stay tuned. We'll be right back after these few minutes to talk, or this break, let me say, to bring on Pete Rizzo and talk about the history of Bitcoin with one of the best historians I know and maybe one of the best historians there is in the world of Bitcoin, which is a growing world. So stay tuned. You're going to love this episode, and we'll see you in a few minutes right after this word from our sponsor. Okay, guys, this is Gary Leland, the Bitcoin Boomer, and you need to come here if you want to find out what Bitcoin is, if you want to just meet some great people and have a great time. Come to BitBlock Boom, but it's one thing, you have to be a Bitcoiner. We don't allow shitcoiners. Last week in August, every year, moving to Austin. Yeah, I love coming to BitBlock Boom because it's like it's like Mecca for Bitcoiners. Like everybody here is like part of the hardcore, like inner sanctum. Um, you just have these conversations with everybody where like you can see it in their eyes that they believe the same things that you believe. You come to BitBlock Boom once, you're gonna come every year. Speakers are great. The networking is great because you know, that's really what it's about when you're uh, a Bitcoiner, especially when you're a new Bitcoiner, is you want to network with as many Bitcoiners as you can learn because there's so much information, not only about Bitcoin, but about money in general. 
Hey, so I'm down here at Biplock Boom, and what energy, what a lot of fun. It's all Bitcoiners and uh, just good people. That's the one thing that, that all my interactions that I've had with people, you can tell you're just dealing with a culture of people that just want to make the world a better place. So if you want to come to a Bitcoiner conference, not a crypto conference or a shitcoiner conference, if you want to come to a Bitcoin conference, you would come to Bitblock Boom. But like I said, don't even mess with it. Don't even think about it. Don't even attempt to buy a ticket if you're a shitcoiner because your money's going to come back and you'll just make us both work. But if you're a Bitcoiner, you need to sign up and come to Austin now. Come to Bitblock Boom. Welcome back to the Bitcoin Boomer Show. I'm your host, Gary Leland, and today we have a great show for you. I'm really kind of excited to bring in our guest. Our guest today is Pete Rizzo. Pete, welcome to the show. I hope everything is going great for you, and I'm looking forward to a great conversation here on this end. Gary, happy to be here. Uh, Bitcoin Boomer meets the uh, Bitcoin historian. You got, you got to love the mashup. You got to love the mashup. An old dude. And a dude who knows a lot about old stuff. <laughs> it's kind of a, an old kind of show here going on there. Yeah, so I'll go for that any day. So, uh, Pete, you uh, work for Bitcoin Magazine as the head editor. Uh -huh. And you're uh, editor also at Kraken. You've been in this space as a writer. And you were with, uh, is it Coindesk before that? Yeah, I was a, I've been a journalist uh, covering Bitcoin since 2013, uh, back when it was uh, just under $50. Uh, so uh, seen quite a few things and, uh, you know, over a number of years. And I think, you know, that's been the focus of my work of late is really just communicating that to people. Because what I find is, you know, with every kind of new price increase, with every new run, uh, there's more people who are, who are learning about Bitcoin, but they're learning about it for the first time, right? So they don't know um, you know, about this great history in Bitcoin, how much has happened. Uh, and they have, you know, questions that I think um, definitely having a longer time horizon, something I'm sure sure you know, uh, you know, definitely changes your perspective about things. So that's really what I try to fill the void for people who are coming into the industry of saying, you know, no, this has been around for now over 10 years. Uh, we do understand Bitcoin pretty well. There's a lot of historical examples of, about how it's worked and, and things that you can dig into. And, and my work is really about surfacing that and making it accessible to people. Well, and that's a good goal to have, and I enjoy reading your work, to be honest with you. I think that, I don't know if anyone else has uh, targeted Bitcoin to become a historian in it, and I would have to say you are the uh, predominant Bitcoin historian, but what made you get into Bitcoin? How did you find Bitcoin? Give us a quick, um, mm. your Bitcoin uh, history, how you got in it, not history, but your beginnings. Yeah, my Bitcoin journey. Yeah. Yeah. Happy to dive in there. Uh, I was a young uh, aspiring journalist and, you know, was looking for things to write about and, and eager to be paid to write. Right. So I was looking for a great story. So uh, I had an editor that I was friends with out of Boston who, would, who called me up. He wrote for a financial publication. Uh, and, you know, that wasn't something I was really uh, doing a lot of at the time. But he said, hey, there's this interesting new story, uh, Bitcoin. You know, we, we don't have any on the staff to cover it. Are you interested? 
Uh, and I took it and ran with it. And uh, I think really what appealed to me at first was, um, you know, being a younger millennial, you know, coming out of the financial crisis and the Occupy Wall Street movement, there was a lot of angst about what was going on in the financial system. But there really wasn't a lot um, that you felt like you could do to solve that, right? Or, or to even work on that in a proactive way. So I think one of the things that immediately jumped out to me about Bitcoin was, you know, hey, here's all these new and interesting people. I remember going to, you know, meetups with uh, comedians and, and bankers and, you know, uh, people from just all walks of life who are excited about finance, right? Which is something that, uh, you know, as a young person, um, you know, that just isn't something I think that immediately ap appeals to you. But again, here was this great melting pot of all these people and personalities, and they were asking very interesting questions, right? They weren't asking, um, you know, uh, things that were super specific. They were asking like very deep questions, like what is money? Like, how does it work? What is our relationship uh, to the U S dollar? Like, how does the, how should the financial system be run? Um, so I found that pretty fascinating because I had never really approached finance on that level. Right. I think I had been told how it works, right. I've been given an explanation for why our financial system uh, was failing, but the, you know, that felt very foreign. It felt very technical. It was, it, you know, it was something that was hard to wrap your head around. And with Bitcoin, I feel like it, it popped this pinata of, of possibility into this, you know, very gray world of finance. And I think that's what immediately caught my attention uh, before anything else, that it was just a great story, right. It was just, it was just a fascinating thing. And, and the people were fascinating. The conversation was fascinating. Well, going on that same line, I ask this question to everybody, and I want to know, in your words, what is Bitcoin? What, to Pete Rizzo, what is Bitcoin? Mm. What is your definition of Bitcoin? Great, great question. Um, so this might seem a bit stodgy, but I, I view Bitcoin as a uh, fair monetary system, right? It's a, it's a fair monetary system where uh, it's designed in such a way where anyone uh, can play any role in its operation. And that's, that is what is unique about Bitcoin amongst all other financial systems uh, that have been created, right? I like to say that uh, the history of finance is actually quite short. Uh, there was rocks in the ground, there was uh, paper that governments gave us, and, and now there's Bitcoin, right? And I think, um, you know, people need to understand that that's the kind of transition that has taken place here. So I often refer to people uh, and say them to think, no, Bitcoin is an invention. It's not an innovation, right? I think we're very used to as people who grew up in the 90s, 2000s, you know, there was the speed at which the internet was disrupting things, right? These were all innovations, right? You've had um, software and software became websites and then you had cell phones, right? Uh, so the innovation was very quick, right? And we, and we had a certain attitude to that. But invention is very different, right? Invention is something where, you know, you you really do change something about the world when you invent something. And the anecdote I like to give is the the Wright brothers. Uh, they invented, you know, they discovered flight, right? They discovered that man could fly, and it was at any point in history prior to that, it was impossible for man to fly. Man had not achieved flight, and then from the moment that the Wright brothers achieved flight. Uh, man could fly, right? So they actually invalidated something that was true about the world with their discovery. And I think Bitcoin is, is an invention on that level, right? It is something where uh, prior to Bitcoin, we did not have a way uh, to make data and software money. And we did not have a way to create a financial system in which every participant had equal access to that system, right? And they, if you think about how our financial system works today, uh, there's a central bank that is affiliated with the government, that is affiliated with these other private commercial banks. And then you, the user, you know, what are your abilities and rights and freedoms in that system? Can you audit these institutions? Uh, no. Can you prove that, uh, you know, anything is sort of true about the money that you're given? Uh, not really. Uh, can you transact however you want? Um, maybe, depending on your financial standing and, and how much access to credit you have. 
right? Whereas in Bitcoin, you have this right to transact. You have this right to run the software you want. You do have these rules uh, that because they're enshrined um, within the software, uh, they, they can't be taken away from you, right? No one can print more Bitcoin with a keystroke. Whereas in the current financial system, uh, that is quite literally how money is created, right? Money is a, a, a ledger entry and some balance sheet uh, and, and can re- be created spontaneously without oversight, right? So again, I like to draw the two real distinctions. One is that you know Bitcoin is a monetary system like other monetary systems, and it has different qualities to other monetary systems. And I, I think that they're actually fairer and ethical, uh, more ethical when you uh, make those comparisons. And the second, that Bitcoin is an invention, right? It's something that uh, does upend what people previously knew about how something that was very fundamental to the world worked. Uh, and because of that, it can be very challenging to understand because it does make things that were previously impossible possible, right? And, and you have these great stories that came from the invention of flight and things like that, where, you know, there's there's a, a kind of anecdote about uh, the Wright brothers were unable to convince any scientific journals to cover their discover of flight for a period of, of 10 years after they discovered it in North Carolina. They flew their bicycle plane <laughs> into the sky. Uh, no one would listen to them. No one believed them uh, because I think that's the power of invention, right? You, re- you really are doing something that was previously impossible. And I think that's one of the ways I like to explain what I think is the, the natural reaction to Bitcoin of, oh, that can't work, that must fail. People still think that Bitcoin is impossible, even though it currently exists. And I, and I think I think that's a very fascinating thing uh, that I like to kind of uh, make people uh, think twice about. Well, I think that's that's a really true point that when you tell someone about Bitcoin or they find out for the first time, uh, it's hard for someone to conceive the concept. They just really can't understand it. And I think that's because we've become uh, trained to think of money uh, as these pieces of paper or something that we can touch and something mm-hmm. that's controlled by a central entity. So I, I think that's the hardest part is because of how we've been trained, especially for older people, maybe not younger people. And I think that's why older people or boomers have a harder time. Yeah, I, I think I, I can't speculate on that. I know that I've, I've had challenges uh, with uh, people in my life who are, who are a bit older and, and trying to convince them and, and thinking that uh, Bitcoin is exciting. Uh, you know, another anecdote is uh, I remember purchasing some Bitcoin from my father and uh, I think it was 2014 and 2015. And, um, you know, I bought it on exchange. I put in a wallet for him. I, I, I sent it to him. Uh, and uh, he never claimed it, never did anything with it. Uh, didn't think twice about it. Uh, and then recently, uh, maybe this was like 12 months ago, we were having a conversation and he, and he was like, you know, he had finally done some research on his own. And he was like, oh, why didn't you tell me about this? And <laughs> why didn't you go the, you know, I could have been, could have been this rich man now <laughs> if you, if you had only told me about it. And I was like, dad, I've, I've worked uh, in Bitcoin for, for almost, uh, eight years at that point. I was like, you could have asked me something about it at any time. And I was like, you know, I also gave you some, well, Pete, uh, that you, that you lost, you know, we're going to have to cut you. We have a hard break here. That's a funny story. We'll be right back after this <laughs> word. And welcome back to the Bitcoin boomer show. I'm Gary Leland, your host joined today by Pete Rizzo. Now, Pete, in case you weren't, <laughs> that was a great story you were telling about your dad. You gave him Bitcoin as a gift years ago, and he didn't pay much attention to it. And then now, or not necessarily now, but then later after Bitcoin started, uh, I guess, I, I assume becoming very valuable, he's like, why didn't you tell me about that Bitcoin being something? Now, I think that's pretty typical. Uh-huh. I think that's not an unusual story, except the case you worked in Bitcoin for eight years, you know, at that point. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
Yeah, it's a, it's an unfortunate thing, right? I think that um, you know why people like myself who have been in the industry for a while. It's you know I, I think we just think that Bitcoin needs to keep increasing in price, right? This is something that seems very fundamental uh, to Bitcoin, uh, though it does have these qualities that it's a fairer monetary system and a better monetary system than our current financial system. Um, you know, people do really have to, I think, see that the benefits for being a participant in the Bitcoin economy outweigh being a participant in in the traditional economy, right? And I think that's really what happens to people when they experience that that loss or that that fear of missing out, right? And I have that myself, right? I, even though I uh, began writing uh, about Bitcoin and, and was a journalist in in, in 2013, uh, I didn't immediately invest in Bitcoin, right? Because what happened that year was very similar to what you you know we're experiencing right now. There was a massive run up in the price of Bitcoin. Uh, there was a massive crash uh, in the price, right? I watched Bitcoin go from fifty dollars to a thousand dollars, and then and then back to two hundred dollars in a short amount of time, right? So I think. Um, you know, this aspect of Bitcoin being volatile, it, you know, it's both good for adoption and, and difficult for adoption, right? But I think over time, we see that Bitcoin is going up, right? Over time, it's becoming more valuable. And I think people need to, uh, you know, see that over time, it's up and to the right, right? It's, I think it's going to take a long time for people to kind of get used to that, right? Because we are used to this facade of stability with the dollar where it's always worth a dollar and then every everywhere we go, everything is priced in dollars, right? We don't have that with Bitcoin, right? So again, going back to the fact that it is an invention, it is an invention, right? It's a new kind of monetary system. Uh, it's one where you're rewarded uh, at, a, at a higher level. And I think that's something that's important, right? So people need to see that it is getting better and it is improving and then and that manifests in the price, right? And then people react to that in different ways. Well, I think it's, um, you know, easier to see Bitcoin go from 1,000 to 200 or from, let's say, 19,000, or in 2017, it went from 19,000 to 3,500 than it 3, is to see, yeah, 3,000, mm -hmm. than it is to see it go from 69,000 to 29,000, even though the first two, the 2,000 to two, or 1,000 to 200 and the 19,000 to 3,000 were bigger percentages than the 69,000 to 29,000. You see such a big dollar loss that, you know, because that's what people mm -hmm. are comparing Bitcoin against is the dollar. You know, since so you're going, oh my gosh, I lost $100,000. Where before, using the same amount of Bitcoin, you go, oh my gosh, I lost $5,000, you know, back in the day. So I think it's a harder thing to see. Yeah, I think one of the things I like to say in response to that is also just remind people of the history, right? So at one point, Bitcoin was worth nothing and it didn't have any value, right? So when Satoshi created Bitcoin, Satoshi Nakamoto, the founder, the, the creator of Bitcoin, when he invented Bitcoin uh, and he released it, Bitcoin didn't have any value and it actually didn't have any value for almost a year, right? So you can sort of ask the question of like, well, was Bitcoin even money at that point, right? Bitcoin may have been a software. People were running the software. Uh, but if you were a participant in the early Bitcoin economy, this would have been 2009, uh, you would have actually been uh, expending electricity on your computer to run the software uh, to mine Bitcoin. And you would actually have been mining Bitcoin at a loss, right? If you were to look at it from a US dollar perspective, right? And you're spending all this electricity to mine Bitcoin and Bitcoin doesn't have a value. It's not money yet. Uh, you were actually doing something that was economically probably not in your best interest. Flash forward today, uh, and you read these old, old forum posts where, you know, yeah, per day, some some of these guys were mining 500 Bitcoin a day, right? Because that's, that's how much Bitcoin was being produced. Nobody was willing uh, to mine Bitcoin. But I think it's really interesting to see then that Bitcoin does become priced, and why does it have a price? Why does it become money? It becomes money because people are willing to accept it. 
people start uh, you know creating an economy. They start trading dollars for Bitcoin. They start trading PayPal uh, dollars for Bitcoin. They start trading digital currencies of all game currencies for Bitcoin. Right, this whole vibrant circular economy happens in Bitcoin, and I think it's it, it's it's quite illuminating when you go back and you see you know you just mentioned you know these drops from sixty thousand to thirty thousand or you know nineteen thousand to three thousand. Well, back in the back in the earlier days of Bitcoin, you know you would have it would go up to five dollars and back below a dollar, right, or it'd go up to hundred dollars uh, and then go back to twenty dollars right so there's this idea that you can put the volatility of Bitcoin in context right and that and that I think what history provides here is really a lens is that yes Bitcoin is you know maybe thirty thousand dollars today and that may be down from from sixty thousand dollars but really that's up from zero and up from a point where Bitcoin wasn't money and didn't have to be money right it spontaneously became money uh, because people wanted it to be money um, and I think you know this idea that Bitcoin is volatile right I think people laugh when they say that I got into Bitcoin at $50 and I was scared to buy, right? That just seems crazy right now, right? If I were to say that to you and you were a person on the street, you would be like, well, that's insane because it's $30,000 today. You would have benefited immensely from even putting a bit of, of money in. But that that uh, reaction that you would have is actually just as true today. It's just as true at, at today's price point <laughs> because if you believe over time uh, that Bitcoin really is a financial system. It's a new monetary system, and that monetary system is going to become more competitive. But not just you know your government's financial system, but all financial systems. Uh, then you have to think that you know we're early in that trajectory, right? The same way that I looked at fifty dollars and said, "Oh, this is too expensive." Um, it might be as ridiculous to look at Bitcoin at thirty thousand dollars and to think it's too expensive, right? That that might be the, just as true today as it was then. Well, I, I, I tell people all the time that when they're thinking, is this a good time to buy Bitcoin, seems awful high. There's never really been a time when people didn't go, didn't ask that question. You asked it to yourself at $50. Right. You know, I asked it to myself. I got it later, but at $3,000, I asked, wow. And, and I was scared to take the chance. And you're, I agree. Now, in hindsight, it seems like, wow, you did great getting in so early. And I'm told I got in so early. But <laughs> but when I when you got in, right. and the same thing was for you, when you got in, you're going, gosh, there are people who got in at a nickel, and I'm getting in at 50 bucks. And I'm going, gosh, there are people who got in a nickel, right. and I'm getting in at $3,000. And, and those people are saying the same things. But once a few right. years go by and you see this cycling happen, you get less scared of it when it drops. I mean, uh, is the main thing because the first time you see it drop, which it drops and goes up and drops and goes up, you have a heart attack, but you kind of get hardened to it, I'd say, after a while. Right. You have this idea of relativity, right? I think the longer that you've experienced the market, the more familiar it seems and, they, and the easier it becomes to put these things into context, right? And, and I think Bitcoiners have, have over time become very good at developing uh, ways to, to manage your psychology, right? It really is about psychological management. You know, if you believe there's a chance that Bitcoin can become a monetary system that competes with global monetary systems, right? That it might be the Amazon of money, right? It might dominate in its category to that extent. Uh, you would admit that Bitcoin's earlier in its trajectory, right? But then the pain of daily, you know, kind of putting that money in, uh, you know, we were talking about the story of my, my dad who wouldn't claim the Bitcoin that I sent to him. You know, once he got Bitcoin, once he was like, oh, I, I get it. This is, this is powerful. It was funny. He went into saying, oh, should I go all in? Should I just put everything in Bitcoin, right? And I was like, well, I don't know. You know, I don't think you want to do that either, right? Might, might not be the best idea, right? You still have to financially plan and coordinate, right? I think so um, you as an individual economic actor, you have to make decisions around Bitcoin, right? And coordinate 
uh, your decisions, right? So uh, even if you become totally convinced from this interview, right, me and Gary just to totally convince you to go, you know, that Bitcoin is the future, uh, you know, you still have to manage yourself financially. We still live in a world where these financial systems are competing. One is emergent, maybe one declining. Uh, and the reality today is that we live in a world where, you know, even most Bitcoiners, when they go to the store, they're not spending in Bitcoin, right? That's the vision. That's the hope, right? We might want to see people like Jack Mallers, you know, uh, with his company Enlightening, you know, getting uh, Bitcoin accepted in all these stores, right? Maybe that is that is a future that soon we should we should strive to uh, bring about that reality. But that's not the reality today, right? So I think that the other way to kind of put this in context is to is to think, okay, well, really, if the opportunity is that big, what does the world look like then, and what does the world look like today? And I think, um, you know, kind of speaking to the theme of the show, you know, you can look at other historical analogs, right? It was true at one point uh, that not many people had email, right? We used to use printers. We used to print out paper. Uh, that was primarily what the internet was used for like in its early days, right? And now uh, email adoption, cell phone penetration, they're so large um, that you would never think about printing. I mean, who prints things out these days? Lawyers, right? Yes. I mean, who else? <laughs> you know, yeah, you print out a contract and once we, in a while. We'll be right back after this word and continue this. And welcome back to the Bitcoin Boomer Show. I'm your host, Gary Leland, joined today by Pete Rizzo, the Bitcoin historian. Now, Pete, you did bring up that uh, at the end of that last segment, we were bringing up how Bitcoin is just another technology, that it's just uh, technologies involved into a new technology. Um, but something also you brought up that I want to mm -hmm. go into is you brought up the name Satoshi. Now, Satoshi Nakamoto is the person that mm. created Bitcoin. And uh, no one knows who Satoshi Nakamoto was, and he has a million Bitcoin. So let's talk about Satoshi Nakamoto for a minute. A lot of people think, uh, or I don't know that a lot of people think, but you hear people say, oh, no one knows who that is. It was the CIA, or, or maybe it's some guy who's gonna come back in a back door and, and take everybody's Bitcoin later. Um, but what, what do you know about Satoshi Nakamoto? I know you don't know who it is, who he is, or her, or whatever, but let's discuss Satoshi Nakamoto for a minute. Yeah, sure. Happy to. This is a fascinating field of study and something I've spent a good bit of time on. Uh, I actually have some writing on Bitcoin Magazine uh, about the early days of Satoshi, of Satoshi and his management of Bitcoin as a software project. But, you know, truth be told, we really just don't have a, a lot of information about Satoshi, right? So one of the uh, most interesting things about Bitcoin as a historical phenomenon is that, um, you know, it was created by someone who wanted to hide their identity and wanted to remain anonymous, right? So uh, this is a person who emerged on the internet has no past internet history, uh, who created a website, who uh, went on an email list, who uh, released a white paper uh, advertising to the scientific community his achievements, uh, and then released a software for people to run uh, where they were able to uh, use this new uh, money that he created uh, called Bitcoin, right? So um, what's I think most interesting and where people derive a lot of uh, our understanding about, about Satoshi is he, he was someone, uh, so first off, he did represent himself as a he, right? So I am I'm on this forum, that, that is how he identified, so that is how I will identify him. Uh, so there is that, right? But we also don't know anything about him uh, because he hid his identity on the internet so well, right? So we aren't able to kind of trace where his IP address was, or we aren't able to find that he left any fingerprints or clues about where he, he uh, was or in the world or what he was even doing at the time. He was not upfront about that, right? So we have this individual who's sort of 
shrouded in, in anonymity. And I think uh, what you find from that is, is people ask questions then about, well, why would Satoshi want to remain anonymous? Why would that be maybe even essential for the Bitcoin project, right? And I think the answer to that is if you know your intent is to found and create a new monetary system for the world, uh, then you would want there to be a very high degree of trust in the system and the actual software and technology itself. Um, and I think Satoshi Nakamoto, if you can look at his writing, as he was very... Um, you know, worried or about being seen as the sort of creator or owner of Bitcoin or right as the manager or CEO, right? He really wanted to create a software project to release a technology uh, to solve problems within the world, right? To solve some of the things that we've talked about with, you know, bank failures and, and government failures with government money. Um, but, you know, apart from that, he was very careful not to let his personal identity um, you know, be exposed, right? So what we can really tell about Satoshi is that he's someone who had great intent, right? He is someone who, you know, not only had a, a, an amazing invention, not only did this world-changing idea, uh, but he put the personal effort in uh, to abstracting his identity to ensure that he would never be linked uh, to that project publicly, right? And I think that's a very powerful idea. Some people, you know, choose to put a lot of positivity towards that uh, to say, oh, he was this, you know, benevolent person who, you know, wanted to set this example for Bitcoin and steward it uh, and, and then left the project. And there are others who, you know, may have questions, may say, oh, maybe Satoshi was someone uh, who, you know, we maybe wouldn't want to be involved with the project. Maybe his identity was a detriment uh, to what he created. Maybe he had reasons for, for you know, leaving that weren't altruistic, right? So I think there are, uh, you know, great questions about Satoshi Nakamoto that, that remain unanswered and we might never answer them. Uh, I think the, you know, other thing that I like to remind people then is that, you know, we don't have to answer these questions. So one of the things about technology is, is that they're able to be useful on their own. We don't ask who invented fire or uh, who invented pants is like a funny analogy <laughs> I like to use, right? It doesn't change your relationship uh, to the invention, right? Uh, we all walk around every day uh, and and we wear pants and, and we use fire and we use these great tools. We use the wheel. Uh, we use these tools that were invented by humans. Uh, and at the end of the day, we don't have a relationship with those creators of those inventions either, right? But I think it's tough for us because Bitcoin, again, it's we as humans are struggling to understand Bitcoin uh, and we want to have a personal relationship with, with the creator, right? We want to understand this person who, who could come up with this idea that seems so big and so bold uh, that, that there's no way to relate to it. And I think um, one of the interesting things about Satoshi Nakamoto and studying him is that, is that you know, humans want, we want something from Satoshi that he never gave us. We want this personal relationship. Uh, we want to feel like uh, a connection with him. And I think um, to the extent that he lived his life online, uh, you know, he did not provide that to us. And so that leaves us with these questions and mysteries and, you know, maybe they never get solved, uh, but they've certainly become a pretty fascinating lore uh, to study. Well, you know, something you just said there, and then it's going to go against what I said, and I don't know why I say this. I said Bitcoin was a he, she, or they. I hear that all the time. And now I'm adopted in saying it, and you're saying uh, Satoshi said he was a guy. Did he, where did he say that? He said that in his writings? Let's cover that real quick so we can, maybe we can get this so people just start yeah, saying sure. so, it's uh, a guy instead of a they or he or she or whatever. 
Yeah, of course, we can't know scientifically, right? But we do know that uh, one of the first places that Satoshi went to evangelize his creation, right? So he releases Bitcoin, uh, the white paper on this mailing list. Uh, and then he he goes to other places where he thinks like-minded individuals will be, right? So he goes to uh, what was called the P2P Foundation, so the Peer-to-Peer Foundation, uh, you know, which was covering peer-to-peer technology. So this would have been things like BitTorrent, like Napster, those kind of ideas, right? The forum where these, these things were discussed. Uh, and he creates a profile online with a birth date, uh, you know, and a profile image, which he didn't provide, uh, and some other brief identifying information. So he does give his birth date, uh, which is April 15th, 1975, or something like that. Maybe I'm, maybe it's not the 15th, but in, in there, he does also identify as male. So, um, you know, I like to say, given the opportunity to identify, uh, so she <laughs> identified as a male. So therefore, that is, you know, it seems respectful to identify him. Uh, as that uh, going forward, otherwise, I'm sure he he likely would have specified something else. <laughs> no, I I can agree with you there. If he said he's a male, especially in today's world, then he's a male, um, and we should call him a male if that's what right. he wanted to be known as. <laughs> well, no matter what he was, he wants to be known as a male. So I I actually did not know that. I find that a pretty interesting piece of information there. Um, so is that is that the one uh, place where he gave his? Uh, I I'd never heard of the age. You know, the birthday. So is that the only place that we have any information, personal information on him? Is that one post? Or not even post, that one yep, registration. That's correct. And, you know, yeah, there's this uh, great, you know, uh, sort of uh, interesting field of study where it's almost like the numerology of Satoshi, right? People are sort of uh, very interesting, uh, the, you know, theories about where Satoshi came up with these numbers, right? Like the, the one of the ones that, you know, I don't know how real this is, but it's certainly kind of clever and fun is that there's, you know, 2016 blocks like need to take place before there's a halving, right? So Bitcoin has a monetary system and has a scheduled reduction in the issuance of Bitcoin. And so every four years, you know, there's a programmatic change uh, to the new money issuance. And there's, you know, 2016 uh, blocks that are produced on the blockchain prior to each reduction. Uh, and so there's this uh, theory that uh, it's actually an anagram for 6102, which was the executive order that uh, was given by Franklin D. Roosevelt uh, to confiscate all the gold in America. And it's sort of looked at as this uh, deep uh, clue about Satoshi's motivations, right? So you, uh, some of these are kind of funny, right? Like, um, you know, I, I think what's interesting is that Satoshi is someone that we care about enough to have these types of, you know, theories. Uh, is it true that 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 that's why he did that? Like, well, certainly we don't know concretely. He never, uh, you know, said that was why. Is it? Uh, does it tell us something about Bitcoin? Uh, is it plausible? Uh, it's certainly plausible, uh, but it's hard to say. Like, you know, how exactly you should think about that. I, I sort of think about it more as like a fun fact or like a. Um, you know, uh, it's fun speculation, right? There's this tremendous speculation around Satoshi, um, but I think it's a it's a way that we, as people within the Bitcoin culture, uh, try to relate and understand this invention, right? I think it all goes back to our desire to try to understand, um, you know, what he created, and and I think there's the uh, stuff that you can do that is. Um, you know, a little bit more uh, academic, which is like kind of look at his writings and strictly kind of what he said. And then there's sort of like the fun community, uh, almost like conspiratorial or conspiratorial like sort of elements to it, where there's like conspiracy theories about, you know, Satoshi and all these sorts of things. <laughs> um, that's interesting, especially on the numbers. Now, when we come back, just to give you a heads up, I want to cover Pizza Day. A lot of people don't know about Pizza Day and why this is historic. So stay tuned with us while we cover Bitcoin Pizza Day after this break.
And welcome back to the Bitcoin Boomer Show. I'm your host, Gary Leland, joined today by Bitcoin historian Pete Rizzo. Pete, welcome back. You know, today on this part, I want to go into something. Um, it's kind of an interesting tale, but it's really a, a milestone, I think, in Bitcoin is Bitcoin Pizza Day. Um, let's talk about Bitcoin Pizza Day and what it means to Bitcoin or what it meant to Bitcoin, if anything. Yeah, sure. Happy to just dive in there. So, of course, talking about Bitcoin Pizza Day, this is May 22nd, celebrated every year uh, as a milestone in Bitcoin culture. It, it really uh, commemorates the first uh, real-world transaction uh, in which uh, Bitcoin was used to purchase a real-world good. So this would have been in May uh, of 2010, a little bit over a year uh, and four months into Bitcoin's existence. And at that time, uh, I think it's important to remember while there was a cyclical economy, Bitcoin was mostly being used for digital goods, right? People were trading different currencies for Bitcoin. Maybe they're trading different internet currencies for Bitcoin. Uh, Bitcoin Pizza Day was really the first time, you know, uh, someone spent Bitcoin and then, you know, on, on a real world item, right? As a payment, something where you you might use it on, on a level of like a US dollar, right? And so uh, this man from Florida, his name was Laszlo Hines. He was one of the first Bitcoin users and developers and a, a big miner at the time. He, he posted on a Bitcoin forum, which was this early kind of talk channel where, where people were communicating. Uh, and he said, hey, I'm hungry. I want to buy a pizza. I'd like to buy two pizzas. I'm willing to spend uh, 10,000 Bitcoin, right? So uh, if you do the exchange rate, it, it it comes out to about, at that time, he spent about $40 on that pizza. Uh, some other uh, forum user responded, uh, you know, sent, uh, you know, accepted Bitcoin, made the transaction for the pizza, sent it to Laszlo's uh, house. And, uh, you know, he posted on the forum a, a few days later with this pizza, right? So it really became kind of this, this milestone in the community where, you know, it was about early on celebrating what you could do for Bitcoin, right? Here's someone who, you know, made this now what looks like an immense sacrifice, right? He spent 10,000 Bitcoin on two pizzas. Uh, and I think there's a lot of fun community things about, you know, you look at what this pizza would be valued at today, you know, this is almost like a $300,000 pizza. I mean, at certain points, I think it's, you know, in the millions of dollars, right? So if you, I don't even do the exchange right now, 10,000 Bitcoin uh, to US dollars, uh, you know, uh, you know, 3 million, 3 billion, right? A crazy amount. <laughs> so it's uh, become the story that uh, I think Bitcoiners tell uh, and that, uh, you know, each year it, it sort of marks our milestone and our progress, right? Both in advancing Bitcoin for commerce, but uh, also serves as a reminder about, you know, how fast Bitcoin has grown and how much, uh, you know, it has appreciated in value because, uh, you know, it, it, you have to kind of go back and look and, you know, would we rather have had this first real world transaction or, or would you rather have been the guy who kept the 10,000 Bitcoins? And of course, Laszlo, I'm sure has other, other Bitcoins, but, uh, you know, he certainly made a big sacrifice uh, for the community in terms of, of pushing it forward. So, you know, that's, that's the tale and, and why it lives on. Well, I've seen him uh, since uh, on interviews and he's not upset at all that he spent 10,000 Bitcoin. So I have a feeling since he was that earlier adopter, he still has a lot of Bitcoin sitting around there. Not that I know. Not that I know. Yeah, for sure. And there are some interesting facts, right? He uh, he actually did this more than once, right? So he actually, uh, there's some evidence on the forum. It's actually unclear how many times he did this. But um, after he did the first transaction, 10,000 Bitcoin for, for the two pizzas, other people actually contacted him uh, to see if he was willing to continue doing this. So there, there might have been more pizzas. There's some rumors that he might have actually bought as many as four pizzas kind of with the scheme. So now you're looking at, you know, 40,000 Bitcoin, which, uh, you know, that's, uh, 
at this time, it's it's hard to replace, right? I think uh, one Bitcoin today is is almost an annual salary in, in in a lot of the world, right? So I think it is pretty crazy to to think that this this guy might have been uh, you know so enthusiastic about in, in, in furthering the economy and uh, so so into eating pizza that that he might have spent uh, you know upwards of uh, ten <laughs> to twenty billion dollars to, to scratch that itch. So. Well, that's that's one that's really wanting some pizza. You got an itch you can't control if you're spending that kind of money on pizza. Hey, another thing I want to cover real quick. Uh, this is probably the last thing we'll have time to cover. Is uh, we only have a couple minutes here left. Is El Salvador. What is that historic? Do you think that's going to mean in history uh, for El Salvador being the first country to make Bitcoin a currency? Yeah, uh, great question. I think obviously one of the I think uh, most historic things that has happened in Bitcoin recently is that you know nations are are starting to get in right. They're starting to see the tremendous appreciation of Bitcoin over time, and they're starting to say, "How can this benefit our people?" And I think El Salvador was the first mover there. Um, you know, obviously, I think if you're someone who sees a future in which Bitcoin is a major monetary system of the world, I think it's easy to see then that that El Salvador benefits tremendously, right? That their Bitcoin investments over time will grow, and perhaps the lives of their citizens will improve. And I think I think that's the aspiration. Um, I think in the short term, I think they're likely to come under considerable pressure, right? I think it'll be interesting to see over the next two years. Obviously, you know, their president Nayib Bukele uh, up for re-election soon. This is a position that he's going to have to defend. Uh, you know, obviously, there's local politics involved. Um, I'm hopeful that this law can continue and that uh, you know the El, Sal El Salvador will get the opportunity to leapfrog. Uh, Western countries, right? I think, you know, we wrote the book, Bitcoin and the American Dream. And I think I might've said at the time, you know, well, I do hope and, and I'm optimistic that Bitcoin can solve some of uh, America's, you know, particular financial problems. I do think, you know, as someone who takes a more global perspective, um, you know, it's worth considering how Bitcoin might actually be able to impact other parts of the world, like Latin America or El Salvador. And, uh, you know, we just saw a few months ago, the Central African Republic, uh, probably the poorest nation in Africa, uh, you know, make the same kind of legal tender law, right? These are nations that that want to advance. They see Bitcoin, they see the opportunity, they, they want to buy in. And I think that's encouraging, right? We should do uh, what we can to help these areas, right? Uh, I think I mentioned that editor of Bitcoin Magazine, we're looking into kind of putting, you know, some sort of ambassadorship uh, uh, program there to the Central African Republic, right? Uh, we, we, I think we have to go to these places where people are trying to embrace Bitcoin uh, and, and help them do that, right? Especially if they're expressing interest. So yeah, I think it's a fascinating time for, for, for Bitcoin now that it's emerging at sort of the nation state uh, level. And it's certainly exciting to see places adopted. And I think, um, you know, uh, hopefully in, in 100 years, uh, this will be a story that's as compelling as Bitcoin Pizza Day. Well, you just mentioned it, so I'm going to pull it up. Bitcoin and American Dream. Pete was uh, one of my co-authors on that book. It was uh, eight of us that wrote that book in five days. And uh, we basically lived together in a uh, duplex for five days. Um, now, Pete, we were up in D.C. Uh, with Senator Lummis and some other people um, talking Bitcoin and sharing the word about Bitcoin. Did, uh, we only have about a minute or a minute and a half left on this. Was there anything out of that experience I've not asked you that you found uh, interesting or uh, worth talking about? Don't just say no. <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, look, I think it's amazing that Bitcoin has entered the political conversation to the extent that it has. Uh, you know, I, I try to remain optimistic, right? Of course, with with politics, it's always that's always a struggle, right? I think that um, as we wrote in the book, I think that there's there's a tremendous opportunity with Bitcoin in America, and there's a lot of areas that can benefit from it. Uh, one thing that I've been really uh, you know optimistic about is just uh, you know Bitcoin mining and really what that can do for rural economies, right? I think if you think about America and the history uh, that we have, um, you know, the decline of U.S. manufacturing is still, I think, one of the great pains in the nation's history, right? We used to be a nation that was defined by hard work, a work ethic, and, a, and an industry that really is not there anymore. And I think, um, you know, I've been excited to have conversations from people uh, with people from in Washington, D.C., but, but after we published that book, you know, around the country of saying, yeah, this is, this is a problem, right? Uh, both parties have struggled to address you know, is Bitcoin potentially a way forward is, you know, having an employer that's, uh, you know, a high tech employer with a different, you know, hiring demographic, is that a benefit, right, for the nation? So I think those are great questions, right? I think um, that awakening is something I didn't expect this early, right? If you had asked me like even five years ago, if we would have, you know, potentially in 2024, a president running uh, with with Bitcoin or, or any form of cryptocurrency kind of in their political platform, uh, I probably would have balked, right? I, I don't think I would have thought that that was possible. Um, but certainly tremendously exciting to see. And I think the midterms coming up later this year are, are going to be very interesting. I think you're going to have political candidates, uh, you know, of of some renown, uh, you know, working Bitcoin into their platforms. And I think we got a brief, brief look at that in D.C. Well, you know, I, I, I think you're right. And that was quite an experience. Pete, we got uh, less than a minute left. So I want to make sure you tell people where they can follow you or find your readings or your writings. Read your writings. <laughs> Yeah, you write it to read it, right? Uh, so uh, Twitter, uh, I publish, you know, some daily history posts. You can follow me at Pete underscore Rizzo underscore. Uh, like to keep it interesting, kind of tweeting some photos uh, and facts about the past. Also, uh, you can find my writing on BitcoinMagazine.com. Uh, and uh, you can check out the new Bitcoin print magazine, Bitcoin magazine, print magazine, uh, which is in stores at Barnes & Noble. I uh, have a feature profile there on uh, Dr. Saifedean Amous, the author of the Bitcoin Standard, which uh, is absolutely a book that you should check out if you're just getting into Bitcoin. Well, that is a book you should check out, but that's probably for another time, Pete. Pete, thanks for joining me. And welcome back to the Bitcoin Boomer Show. I'm your host, Gary Leland. I think we had a great conversation today with Bitcoin historian Pete Rizzo. I, I even learned some things, so that always makes a good day. Hey, before we go, I do want to let you know a few uh, updates here. Number one, make sure and check out BitBlock Boom. Now, BitBlock Boom is the Bitcoin conference I do every year in Austin, Texas. And if you are a Bitcoiner or you want to get into Bitcoin or know about Bitcoin, go to bitblockboom.com today and register. I also want to make sure that you know about BitBlock Barbecue. That's right, BitBlock Barbecue. Every month we host a meetup of Bitcoiners in Dallas, Texas and eat great Texas barbecue. So if you're into Bitcoin or if you like barbecue, join us at bitblockbarbecue.com for a great, great time. Now I appreciate everybody coming on the show and I hope that this show has brought you some knowledge that you uh, can use about Bitcoin. As I said in the opening of the show, my goal is not to sell you any Bitcoin. I don't have any Bitcoin I want to sell. My goal is to teach you about Bitcoin, to educate you about Bitcoin. And then if you decide Bitcoin is right for you, as Pete said earlier in the show, maybe you might want to invest a little bit. 
Maybe you'll decide it's not for you and you don't want to invest any. But whichever way you go, at least you're going to have the information that you need or the tools you need to make that decision. And maybe, maybe you'll just be standing at the water cooler at the office one day and someone will talk to me, you'll hear someone talking about Bitcoin and you'll be able to join the conversation and they'll be amazed at how you know so much about Bitcoin. So do um, join us again next week for another episode of the Bitcoin Boomer Show and find out even more. And as I said earlier, please share this show with your friends. Tell your friends about this show. Uh, let's help educate them and let's get the whole world educated on what Bitcoin actually is. Now, if you want to follow me, please follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Gary Leland. Matter of fact, almost all social media, if you want to find me, I'm there and my name is Gary Leland on almost all social media. So do follow me and get a conversation going. I enjoyed all of you being here. I enjoyed doing this show and I look forward to seeing you next week when we bring on Nick Baccia. That's right, Nick Baccia. He's an author who just came out with a great book that you're gonna enjoy this conversation. I enjoyed reading the book. So until next week, we'll see you on the same bat time, same bat channel with Nick Bakia on the Bitcoin Boomer Show. Thanks again. <laughs>